Suicide is a tough topic, but the Washington County Reach for Hope Suicide Prevention Coalition wants you to know that there is always hope. We are a caring community reaching out to provide compassion and hope for a community free of suicide. In the next half hour, we'll talk with community partners to identify risk factors, raise awareness, and discuss prevention strategies. Hello and welcome to another edition of Reach for Hope, where there's always hope. I'm Melissa Anderson. You know, statistics show that one out of six American women have been the victim of an attempted or completed sexual assault in her lifetime. Sadly, rape victims are six times more likely to develop PTSD, and an estimated one-third of those victims are said to be uh, contemplate suicide. With us today to talk about the risk factors and the medical help provided to survivors of sexual assault is uh, Lisa... Um, well, I'll, I'll go in this order. Camden Kafan, Megan Riddle, and regist- they're both registered forensic nurses here in South- at the Southwest Forensic Healthcare uh, here in Washington County, and board member Lisa Brown. Welcome to all four of three of you and four of us today <laughs> in this show. I'll get this right yet. Um, Lisa, first of all, as a board member, tell us a little bit about what is Southwest Forensic Healthcare. Well, thank you, Melissa, for inviting us. Southwest Forensic Nursing and Healthcare is an organization that is a new nonprofit serving here in the Washington County area with 24-7, 365 on-call coverage at St. George Regional Hospital. And in July, we're expanding to Iron County as well as providing local services at Family Health Care here in St. George. And those services are free, correct? They are free. Yeah, so so if anybody wants to go in there or needs to go in there, um, they can walk in the door uh, 24-7, is that correct? That is correct. All year long, um, the services are provided free of charge, and the focus for the services is on health care to the survivor. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that. You know, they're probably, you know, if, if, if you've had this terrible thing, horrific thing happen to you, they don't realize that, oh, no, I don't have health insurance or I don't know where to turn. They can always go to the emergency room. So we're really grateful that you're in this community. How long have you been in this community? Oh, that question is probably better answered by Camden, but a, a long time, but as a nonprofit, that's relatively new. So probably somewhere around 20 years or so now. Wow, that's crazy, but it's it's great to have you here. And then Camden, you've been with this uh, organization for a long time. What is a forensic nurse and what services then do you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So forensic nursing is a specialty subset of nursing um, in which a registered nurse receives additional training of 40 plus hours of the core didactic training. And then they go on to complete skills training, local orientation, pelvic exam training, and really to become trauma informed. That is our goal. So these forensic nurses um, provide care one on one. That's really um, the best thing for these survivors is to have one single nurse there with them along with the Dove Center Hospital Response Advocate to treat them with respect, dignity, understanding, and a believing attitude um, and really focus on their health care after such a horrific event like this. Yeah, it's got to be a traumatic experience anyway. And then want you know walking through that door, you're, they're probably wondering, oh no, what's going to happen next? 
Yeah. So lots of times, you know, we we hear about people who don't come in because of the the worry of cost, because we know emergency room visits are quite expensive. Um, but folks need to know that those costs are completely covered. There's no out-of-pocket expenses for our survivors um, when they come to the emergency department for this type of care. Um, and we are independent of the hospital. We have a contract to work there, but we are not hospital employees in this work that we do. Um, so we come in there to help facilitate the care that they need. That's great. It's great information to know about this. Now, Megan, you you are also a forensic health nurse. Tell me how long you've been with this uh, group and, and why you feel it's really important for people to, to uh, utilize your services. So I've been with this team coming up on three years. Um, and I mean, the importance of people seeking health care after sexual violence is so important for their health going forward. Like, um, I think some people think about all of the legal stuff and police involvement and all of that, and they don't even think about the ramifications of their own health and what that could look like in the future, both physically and mentally. Um, And so seeking care after something like that is tremendously important, even if you have no intention of wanting to talk to the police or press charges or do any of that. As nurses, there are mandated uh, laws that we have to follow and certain things we do have to report. But the the survivor's involvement with the legal system is up to them over the age of 18. And their health is the most important thing that we hope they're seeking our services for. Yeah. So Megan, walk us through what happens to a victim of sexual assault when he or she comes into the hospital emergency room. So they would report just like with any other problem, see the charge nurse, they would get triaged and taken back to a room. Uh, The hospital would contact one of our team members because we are, like Cammie said, we don't work for the hospital, so we're contracted to be there. Um, In that time that it takes for us to respond, they would see typically the hospital physician briefly to make sure they don't have any life-threatening injuries or any anything urgently that needs to be addressed before we get there. And then they're kind of put on this little island until we show up because people are not wanting to um, disrupt any forensic evidence that we might be able to collect. So they don't have a lot of interaction until we get there. And then we're able to offer that one-to-one care. Yeah, that's Camden was talking about. And Camden, um, so what kind of help do you give them once you get there? What do you offer them as far as maybe contraceptive support or um, other things that they might need? Yeah, absolutely. Everything that we do, they guide us. I mean, we have certain things that we offer everyone, um, but anything and everything that we're doing for those patients are their decision and their choice. We give them full empowerment um, and ask for consent for everything that we're doing. But essentially that examination guided by the patient, we are, one, making sure that there's no um, major risks for any health problems, complications, need for crisis management, those things. And we take those as a high priority. And on top of, you know, doing a health assessment with them, we also offer sexually transmitted infection prevention medications, as well as emergency contraception. And all of that is free. All of it's free. Yeah, that's so good to hear. Now, Lisa, what kind of uh, post support is offered um, to these victims or these survivors, as we might call them, um, after they leave the hospital? Well, we work with numerous multidisciplinary partners in our area to provide further support and care to the survivor after they leave the hospital. One of our partners is the Dove Center here in St. George, who can assist with safe living arrangements should the 
um, survivor require that or want that, as well as relationships with behavioral health care following the forensic exam is needed, and follow-up contact from our specialty trained nurses. The team will contact the, the survivor afterwards as part of our care plan to see what has developed since then that they might not have thought of that they need. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's got to be tough um, for them to go back out after uh, a traumatic event. So um, kudos to the Dove Center and other places that are willing to reach out and offer that support and that help. And I would imagine if it, it whether whether it happens, you know, on campus or where it would happen that that somebody would reach out and say, hey, we're here for you. Yes. Supporting the survivor is what it's all about and being there in their health care needs, both during the time of right after their trauma and or if it's later. I mean, it could be time after. Maybe it wasn't immediately after. Maybe they come in a little bit later. Regardless, they're welcome to come, get that health care and those resources from our team. Yeah. Now, Megan, um, it said that most victims or survivors, as we're calling, referring to them as of sexual assault, um, know their assailants. I mean, the majority of people know who did this to them. Um, what is the likelihood that they'll even press charges against that perpetrator? Um, first of all, I want to be very clear that it, in childhood sexual assault, they typically know their assailant. And we use the word no kind of loosely now. Like people are meeting on Tinder and having virtual conversations with people that they think they know. And perhaps the person that they meet, they don't actually know. Uh. So it's important to be clear that knowing somebody and actually knowing somebody is very different. Um, and um, that said... So, I still think our team probably does less than half of our cases end up um, with the with the survivor wanting law enforcement actively involved. Um, the thing that we try to be very clear about with the survivor is that you don't have to want to talk to law enforcement right now. Let's take care of your health care needs. Let's gather evidence right now. This kit can exist for up to 20 years. Um, and if you decide one day that the injustice is too great and you want to press charges and unrestrict your kit, that's always an option in the future. So that's why coming in and letting us gather that evidence is so important because when you're sitting in trauma, it feels insurmountable. Like the thought of, of actively going after somebody just feels too terrifying. But after you're able to heal a little bit, a lot of people think about looking at that differently. Yeah. And what are the chances then that the accused attacker will actually be persecuted for their crimes? The statistic I saw said 11% of sexual assault crimes in the state of Utah are prosecuted. And it pains me to say that out loud. Yeah. So uh, they could go out and do that again. But, but hence, that's a good thing for the person who's been attacked or, or, you know, sexually assaulted to actually report that because maybe with our new latest DNA processes and stuff, we can, we can actually go find out that they might have, have done this before. For sure. And we, we do have survivors that come forward with that intent. Like, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else. And, and they're doing it in a very altruistic nature, very, very less worried about themselves, making sure that somebody else doesn't experience what they did. Um, I do think it's also important to point out that if you don't feel that way, that's okay, too. 
Yeah. Like you're, 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 you don't have to be, <laughs> you don't have to be the savior of the entire community. You need to do what you need to do for your own self. Right. And that's why we're talking about the mental health help for this, because it's a traumatic situation. And statistics show that people who have been actually sexually assaulted are three to four times more likely to contemplate suicide. Camden, tell us about that and what the victims often struggle with when we talk about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we evaluate that when they're um, with us um, for their medical forensic exam. We evaluate where they're at, where they have been in the past, what the risks are in the future for them um, to make sure that they have the resources either right now as a, as a crisis evaluation or, um, you know, the potential for the future. Who can they reach out to? What what type of family and friend support do they have? Um, you know, are they going to keep this locked away and not share with that support system or do they want to reach out? And so we have those conversations with every single one of our, um, our patients when we see them. Uh, but certainly there, you know, it is a much higher risk. And, I, you know, I'd love to say that it's not, but that wouldn't be the honesty, honest answer. It's, it's partly based on community beliefs, rape myths, and, and where we're at with sexual violence and intimate partner violence, that we want to believe it doesn't happen here. But guess what? It happens here, and it happens here in greater numbers um, than most states in our nation. Utah has much higher statistics. So it is happening, and, and we, we'd love to start working with the community to bring about the awareness that it is happening here and that it isn't the survivor's fault. So moving away from that first question of the survivor, well, where were you? Why did you meet that person? What were you drinking? What were you wearing? We want to mm-hmm. eliminate all of those shaming and guilting responses um, when someone discloses sexual violence because it doesn't matter. Right. Those things don't matter. Um, what the perpetrator did and chose to do is what the problem is, not what the victim or the survivor did um, because they're not accountable for what that perpetrator did to them. Yeah. And, you know, we've heard the conversation of, well, did you say no? Right. And we (laughs) really want to move that to yes means yes. Did you say yes? Were you a willing, active participant in the the sexual act or the the relationship? Um, And that's very different from did someone say no? Mm -hmm. If they're not an active participant, they are saying no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, regardless regardless of whether they're on drugs or alcohol or anything, it's still not okay. Right. And if they are on drugs or alcohol, they probably can't consent to what's happening. So that is not their fault for what's happening. And, and, And so part of the mental health issue that we have is our community belief system and those rape myths that are spread. Because if that first response to, oh, my gosh, I was sexually assaulted, I'm struggling is, well, why were you there? What were you wearing? If that's the response, then we're only going to worsen the mental health of the person who's already experienced um, really heavy trauma. We need to change the beliefs and the stigma. I I totally agree. Megan, in another statistic, those who have suffered sexual assault were 13 more times likely than non-crime victims to have attempted suicide. I mean, that sounds crazy to me. What types of support is needed to help get these victims back on their feet after the event. Yeah, I think um, knowing that people that live with mental illness are already vulnerable people to have sexual violence perpetrated upon them, 
um, knowing that they might come in with already a depression or an anxiety disorder of some kind. And then having this trauma thrust upon that is only going to compound their mental troubles, if you will. Um, so the resources, again, like Camden said, it starts by believing them. Mm-hmm. Just, just we know statistically that there are better outcomes for survivors if they have a strong support system. If the very first time they say this out loud is met with, well, how did you participate in this? They're, they're not going to do as well as if another person that has somebody that, that hears them, believes them and, and sees them. So first of all, a strong support system is helpful. And then um, utilizing the aftercare resources that we do have. But again, that's hard sometimes because people are sitting in trauma and, and reliving it and rehashing it and talking about it in therapy sessions isn't always reasonable to ask of them. They have lives. They have to get back to work. They can't sit in this. They have to do the next thing. And so that trauma goes undealt with. Yeah. And that includes family members and um, a support system at home and friends and things like that as well. Um, Camden, can you tell us about what other types of mental health problems victims might often encounter after afterwards? How do they manage that? Yeah. The number one coping mechanism we see is, like Megan mentioned, is to almost like pretend like it doesn't happen, move on with your life. Um and go back to work, go back to school, go back to your everyday tasks because they become very, very task oriented um, because that's what keeps them moving forward. But unfortunately, the health effects of that coping mechanism is that it buries somewhere in the body. Um, and, And physical and mental trauma, if it's not dealt with, then results in chronic health conditions, chronic migraines, uh, abdominal pain that has no source, um, chronic pain of other areas, back pain um, are often things that we see. But then on top of that, all the mental health issues that come with it, because that's going to create a level of anxiety and depression, even if they haven't had that in the past, because they're, they're burying it and not dealing with it. But like Megan said, everybody has their own course and their own time. It's making sure that they know what the resources are so that when they are ready to deal with the trauma, and hopefully it's sooner than later, um, uh, before their health is you know, severely impacted, that they can seek those support services. And, and, and there are multiple different pathways people can choose. And there's a lot of advancement in trauma care, um, long-term trauma care with EMDR therapy, as well as several other types of therapy that are coming out that are becoming much more effective than traditional therapy to help folks deal with especially repressed trauma. Yeah. And you said something that triggered my thought was resources. I mean, what kind of resources do you give them before they go back out into the community? Yeah. So based on that evaluation, when we care from them that day is kind of what type of resources we give them. Remember, they are sitting in trauma, even if it's been several days, it's still fresh trauma. And so lots of times they're not ready to seek those, but we give them pamphlets, we give them handouts, we give them QR codes to follow up on. We make sure that we're reconnecting with them and that they're connecting with the Dove Center if they choose to, because we know that immediately there's, unless it's a crisis eval and needing hospitalization of some kind, we certainly can do that if there's active intent. We want to protect them and keep them safe. Um, But if there isn't active intent, then it's just making sure of reminding them and having those available when they're ready. 
and, and as we said, reaching out to them uh, yes. because there's there's always hope uh, and help. And we have the 988 number. That's a mental health um, number that people can call for help. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. We just need to remind them that they're not alone. Um, people who have gone through things their whole lives and, and they just need to remember that we're here for them. That's what this program's all about. Megan, how can we break the stigma then as a community in reporting rape or sexual assault and breaking that stigma of the culture that we were talking about that says, oh, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah, it starts with community awareness, like teaching that it's not no means no, it's yes means yes. Um, really building a community that understands believing survivors and um, understanding what consent means. Um, understanding that two people that have alcohol <laughs> are not putting themselves on a path of any kind and, and taking away the shame and the stigma associated with other little things that other communities might not see stigma and shame around. Um, but yeah, we need to we need to be on the front end of this problem and front load our community and have them understand making them, first of all, more ready to listen to somebody and being a support system to somebody that does share that with them. And that will also open the door for survivors to understand that they're not at blame. This is not their fault. This happened to them and there is help available. And when they come in the door, we talked about that. They might be worried that their friends or family are going to find out about it if they don't want them to. So how confidential is your treatment and your 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 forensic health care? We are still first and foremost nurses. So everything we do follows HIPAA compliance, all medical records are very safe. Um, and ours are even different than the hospital. So I tell survivors all the time, even if you call and try to get a record of what you and I talk about in this room, um, the hospital doesn't have that. Those live completely independent of the hospital. So we never disclose patient information. Um, it, it's a, yeah. It's without their permission. Without their permission and yeah. That's good to know. That's very good to know. I want to follow up real briefly, Camden, about uh, what kinds of ages of people we're seeing you're seeing coming into the do through the doors. I mean, I, I just I can't even fathom this to begin with, but I would imagine it, it, it affects all ages. It does absolutely affect all ages. And, and our community partners with the Children's Justice Center who see, you know, the minor and what we would consider pediatric patients, um, we certainly can see the 14 to 17-year-old, the adolescent age group, but we don't see anyone under that. For certainly it is happening to those ages. Just our, our team is not involved with the young children. Um, but our number one age group is 18 to 24 is the most likely time frame for sexual violence. Um, but that doesn't mean it ends at 24. We've seen patients in their 90s. Um, our oldest patient was actually 98 years old. Um, so it does I mean, they're, every single age group is at potential risk for sexual violence. Um, certainly, once you hit age 40, the, the curve drops pretty drastically, um, with the 18 to 24 being the most prominent time frame for assault. So it's really important for people to understand that, um, you know, it, it, it happens to people on the college campuses and and. Uh, and all over, and we need to not ignore this and, and bring light to the services and the care that you provide. I'm sorry, I don't, 
I don't want you guys to have this job, but you have it's necessary. It's it's a sad state of affairs, but um, I appreciate everything that you guys are doing to to get this word out and to help people because it's really heartbreaking to think about that there's that many people out there that are affected by this. Lisa, uh, where can we find out more information about your Southwest Forensic Healthcare system here and and how it's growing? Well, there is a one there's a couple of wonderful places for you to do that, but I would be completely amiss if I did not tell you how we're supported because of being a nonprofit. It's really um, important to inform our community that we need their help. Grant funding is a big piece of how we are going to be seeking financial support, but donor funds from our community is going to be another huge area for us to embrace. So as a community, besides believing our survivors, and we need to support our survivors with our finances mm -hmm. and be there for them so that that care and the future care that they receive is available to them in our community. So as we build awareness of our services um, in our community, we hope to bring light uh, to the need for their financial support as well as those funding efforts that we're doing and the awareness that we're trying to create in our community. So reaching out to us for presentations in their intimate groups, whatever those groups might be, we're opening the doors for that and would love to come and present to them those statistics that we've talked about today, as well as some of these other things, creating uh, awareness of healthy dating uh, relationships and what does that look like? So yeah. could we help prevent some of this? Right. Yes, we can. And so is there a website or something they can go to? Right now we're in the process of building a website, yeah. so we're not quite there, but they can contact us by calling 435-256-2912 or emailing us at contact at Southwest SW Forensic Healthcare. Org. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you. The Reach for Hope Coalition wants you to know that we care about you and we are here to help. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, reach out. You're not alone. To access resources for yourself or others, visit our webpage at reachforhopeutah.org. That's reach the number four, hopeutah.org. If you are experiencing a crisis, please call or text the Suicide Crisis Lifeline at 988 because you matter and there is always hope. This has been a production from a podcast studio.